people who are able to grow their own food are empowered. And so really empowering people to be independent, to be self-sufficient. It's empowering to be able to feed yourself, so growing your own food. But also, there was something empowering about being able to use my food choices to help create positive change in the world. Welcome to Wanna Be Greener, a podcast about accessible, achievable environmental action. I'm your host, Harriet Robinson, and today we're exploring the power that we hold when we make decisions about what we're going to eat and where we source it from. Our food is connected to so many things, human and non-human animals, the environment, and we need to stop being siloed in how we look at it. Greater awareness of climate change, and most recently the coronavirus pandemic, has forced many of us around the world to think more about how our meal reaches our plate and the impacts that process has. With celebrity advocates and campaigns like Veganuary, it's now easier than ever to get hold of plant-based food. But is going vegan enough? Unfortunately, I think vegans, they don't want to hear about what's happening in West Africa for their cacao or what's happening for people to pick their produce. They don't want to hear it because it's, it's right. It's, it's that same inconvenient truth. But I think that as we want people to widen their circle of compassion, we too need to widen ours. Lauren Ornelas is the founder of Food Empowerment Project, a California-based not-for-profit raising global awareness about how our food choices can create a more just and sustainable world. So I have to look at what's happening to farm workers and I have to do what I can to help them. That is the mission to Food Empowerment Project. If that's not the mission for another vegan organization, that's fine. But what they need not do is act as if as long as it's vegan, it's free of suffering. An animal activist for more than 20 years, Lauren has carried out numerous factory farm investigations and brought corporate change to huge US companies such as Whole Foods Market and Trader Joe's. She's also given an excellent TED talk called The Power of Our Food Choices, which is well worth a watch. And you can find the link in the episode notes for this podcast. Lauren and I discuss the issues facing farm workers across the world and how that's being addressed, including the irony that our favourite chocolate brands market to children, despite using the worst forms of child labour, including slavery, to make it. We cover some of the foods and food brands that are worth avoiding completely or at least doing your research on. And we talk about ethical and inclusive veganism and how to make morally right food choices when the mainstream media and big budget marketing campaigns try to persuade us otherwise. Lauren turned vegetarian as a child and went on to become an animal rights activist in her teens. Pretty unusual for a young person in the 80s, I think. So where did that passion come from? I don't think, you know, I think I'm one of those people who, because I was so young, I think when I look back, I think there's a lot of different things that brought me to recognize that my food comes from somewhere and someone. And so for non-human animals, I think it was just, you know, a few different things. One is growing up in Texas and seeing the cows in the fields. And, you know, when I was really young, my parents were going through a divorce and, you know, my mom would have to take me different places for somebody to take care of me when she went to work. And I think that the idea of seeing the cows in the fields and thinking I could be responsible for why that mom didn't come back to her baby or the baby didn't come back to her mom. I think it, in retrospect, 
I look back on that and realize that must have been one of the things because I know that seeing the cows and I would be thinking that way, like my heart would hurt just thinking about me responsible for separating that family. But, you know, I think that there there is a lot of books, obviously a lot of movies where they show animals correctly in my mind in terms of having emotions and, and feelings and desires and fears and things like that. So I think that definitely embedded it in it. I think also being a Hicanix where, you know, I'm Mexican, that growing up with the understanding of farm workers and what they grow through to, to pick food, I think that also, you know, at a young age, both of those together really helped me to look at food in a different way. And I, I feel like I look at food primarily as a tool to create social change. Mm. I mean, that's amazing to come up with, you know, to think that way as a young person, because some people even as adults, don't have those kind of thoughts, I guess. You say you lived in Texas and you're Mexican. I imagine there was a lot of meat and animal products around your family and friends. How did they, you know, what did they think about your views? I think, well, I, I'll fast forward to me being in, in high school because that's when I went vegan. And, you know, I was definitely seen as different. I kind of think I already was in a way because I already didn't like what most kids my age liked that I already kind of was different. Mm. And so I think that kind of went along with it. But yeah, it was definitely difficult being vegan in the late 80s, where buying non-leather, buying cruelty-free products that weren't tested on animals, all of that was definitely difficult. And I think that, yeah, people just saw me as weird. They saw me as um, being uncooperative. <laughs> that ethical value that I had, you know, like, why mm. can't you just eat it versus understanding that it was something deeper than that. This food to me, that was the embodiment of suffering and pain that I didn't want to contribute to. Well, fair enough. And you did continue through it. I think I read that you started your first animal rights group when you were still in high school. Is that right? I was. It was the first animal rights group in a high school in Texas. And um, yeah, I, it was very interesting. The school was very against it. They didn't want to allow it. And so I remember that one of the founders of the local animal rights group, who was kind of like a hippie, he came to the school to support me, kind of wearing cowboy boots to try and fit in and things like that. <laughs> so we did what we could to try and get them interested. And, you know, eventually they agreed to allow the group, which I called Youth for Animals. Amazing. And I guess, I guess we can fast forward a little bit. Uh, so we're not talk about school the whole time, but <laughs> you kind of pursued that throughout your career. So you can't list everything you've done. You've done some amazing things, but you've persuaded some huge companies to make big changes. Well, I don't know. Is there a biggest achievement in that regard? Well, I think the first, I mean, like one of the first things that I did that, you know, I'll say gave me the courage to believe that I could really make a difference, honestly, just by being annoying was I was successful in getting the Austin school district to allow alternatives to dissection. Mm -hmm. And I did this literally by calling the guy like almost every week, asking him to allow alternatives to dissection. As in like in science class when you're like dissecting eyes and things yeah. like that. Is that what you mean? Yeah, so like middle school, high school, yeah, to allow the students to, to have some type of alternative so they weren't forced to dissect on animals. And I think that what I realized was just how being persistent 
and how not letting go could really help achieve. And when I look back on other social justice movements now, as I'm older, I look back and see how important that was. You know, obviously strategy and in having a big group around you to support. But honestly, at that time, it was just literally me calling this guy constantly. <laughs> and so I feel like I learned the, the key to consistency and using that power. I mean, I think that probably one of the things that I'm most known, although people don't know it was me that did it necessarily, was that I had a campaign. Um, I'd done investigations um, when I was working with Beva. Um, I did investigations of duck farms across the United States and try to persuade grocery stores to stop selling duck meat. And I got Trader Joe's, which is a grocery store chain here, to stop selling all duck meat. And that campaign, which we also ran against Whole Foods Market, sparked a dialogue between myself and the co-founder of Whole Foods Market, John Mackey. And we campaigned against them for years. And when he and I finally confronted each other at a shareholders meeting, he said I could email him. And I did. And we kind of argued back and forth for a while over email, and then I didn't hear from him anymore. And he wrote me months later and said that he'd done a lot of reading since we communicated, and he himself had gone vegan oh, and wow. um, wanted to talk more about the policy. So that was huge. And then, you know, not that long after that as well is that we had found one of the, there's a store, which I know y'all have in England, but I think it's kind of going out now called Pier One Imports. We found out that the duck farms that I investigated had been buying feathers for their pillows from the duck farms. And so we got them to stop using feathers in all of their products. Campaigning is one of my favorite things to do because you never know what's going to happen and you can always use different creative ideas in order to try to influence change. Yeah, it's interesting. Like one of the biggest questions when I ask people what kind of issues or topics they'd love to hear talks about on a podcast is how to actually take that next step because you know so many people sign petitions and maybe they might go to a protest or they have a social media blog but they don't know how to actually you know get out there and campaign and and become an activist and it sounds like it's actually you have to be like a, quite a strong determined person quite persuasive as well I suppose because you're you kind of don't let people get off. Exactly. I think that that's the key. And I'd love to help any of those people because I love coming up with campaign ideas. And yeah, I think it's a matter of allowing yourself to have the passion and drive to get it started, have some people on your side, but also allow yourself during it to be disappointed and wondering where it's going, but to not give up, you know, to make sure that you never stop. And so I think that's, you know, for the work I've done, I started a local organization in 2008 um, where I lived and we decided to campaign against a restaurant for selling foie gras. And I had to make it clear to them, if we start this, we're not stopping until they're done. So when it's raining and when it's cold and we're going to be out there, you can't say, no, I'm not going to do this because you are agreeing that we're going to do this until we win it. And we did. Yay. Of course you did. That's amazing. <laughs> Okay, well, I guess we've talked quite a bit about animals and animal welfare, but a big part of what you talk about in the Food Empowerment Project is about people as well. So are you able to just kind of explain that connection between humans and animals and the fact that, you know, food empowerment is not just about thinking about the animals, but also about workers and, and humans too? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that 
this is where we should have been all along. And I hope this is more along more where we can go as well is because our food is connected to so many things, human and non-human animals, the environment. And we need to stop being siloed in how we look at it. We need to stop looking at it and saying, this mm -hmm. is what I do. This is what they do. And, and when I say that, I don't mean that animal rights organizations or vegan organizations or individuals need to stop what it is that they're doing for non-human animals. All I mean is that they need to understand that there's more out there to acknowledge. So, for example, you know, we work on farm worker justice issues. And again, farm workers who pick our food, who pick primarily, you know, produce. So for me as a vegan, I went vegan because of the suffering of non-human animals and I didn't want to contribute to their pain. Well, when I look at my food choices still as a vegan, I'm still contributing to the pain and suffering of someone else. And that means something to me. That means that I still want to try to stop that from happening. So I have to look at what's happening to farm workers and I have to do what I can to help them, right? Mm. But that is the mission of the Food Empowerment Project. If that's not the mission for another vegan organization, that's fine. But what they need not do is act as if as long as it's vegan, it's free of suffering. Mm. We have to be clear that we acknowledge that there is still suffering in the food that comes at the hands of farm workers who are not paid well, who suffer from wage theft, who live, you know, who, who at least here among the highest rates of COVID-19 because the fact that they aren't paid well enough to afford to live well, to drive, to work, to get, you know, to take care of themselves. So, you know, I feel like that there needs to be some acknowledgement of that. And it's not just produce. It's also the other foods that we eat that, that are vegan, that are possibly at the hands of those who suffer. It's weird that it's not kind of something that we all know about. We just, maybe it's too shameful for us to talk about. You know, we all know about the animals and some people know about animal suffering and they still kind of sweep it under the carpet because they really like meat. But I feel like if we saw videos of workers suffering constantly, surely we would want to do something about that. Exactly. And I think that that's that disconnect, right? We get incredibly frustrated and rightly so when people don't want to see or hear what's happening to non-human animals. Mm. And unfortunately, I think vegans tend to be in a similar situation. They don't want to hear about what's happening in West Africa for their cacao or, you know, what's happening for people to pick their produce. Mm. They don't want to hear it because it's, it's right. It's, it's that same inconvenient truth. And I think that for a lot of vegans, you know, we feel like, you know, we've done enough. We're doing as much. We're doing a whole lot. And that's absolutely true. But I think that as we want people to widen their circle of compassion, we too need to widen ours mm. and think about our food choices more holistically. Because, in fact, they're connected. The same institutions that are in place that exploit non-human animals are the same ones exploiting human animals as well. Mm. I was doing a little bit of research into, I, I think, something that you were saying, that it's not just, I mean, I think we think that these are workers in developing countries, in maybe African countries or wherever, that's kind of far away from us in the Western world. And that's still awful. But also it happens in our countries, right? I mean, it's happening in America. It's definitely happening in the United States for produce. Um, it's also happening in places like Spain and Italy. Mm. You know, where you have workers who are, a lot of them are immigrants, who are forced to do jobs where they are not being paid well. They're forced to work without any types of benefits. And many of whom, at least here in the United States, a lot of farm workers will die because of heat exhaustion. 
They're working in all types of weather. And, you know, they die from the heat many times. Um, they aren't given breaks like they should be, so they can't go and get water. They're living 16 people to a one bedroom because they're not being paid well. And, you know, a lot of these families are doing all that they can so their children can have a better future. But they themselves can, you know, who are picking our food can barely afford the health food that would make them healthier. They barely can afford a roof over their head. A lot of farm workers live out near our creeks and our rivers. They are experiencing homelessness. Mm. And the, the women farm workers are, you know, dealing with sexual assault, sexual abuse in the field. So there's a lot that's going on just so that we can have food on our tables. It's crazy. Yeah. Obviously, this is something you wanted to tackle with the Food Empowerment Project. Do you want to just describe what the project does? Sure. Well, Food Empowerment Project is a, a vegan food justice group. So we promote veganism. Veganism is very main part of what we do. We have different websites, veganmexicanfood.com, which is in English and then in Spanish. All of our website is actually in Spanish as well. We have vegan Filipino food, which is in English and Tagalog, and we're going to be having vegan Lao food soon. Our organization is made up of many diverse people who want to celebrate our cultural heritage, as well as encourage people to try our delicious vegan food. We also work on farm worker justice issues. We do that legislatively. We support campaigns called by farm workers themselves. We also do an annual school supply drive for the children of farm workers. This year, we also did a drive to raise funds so we could buy food for the farm workers and buy masks to help them during the pandemic. We also work on lack of access to healthy foods in black and brown communities because we know it's not easy for everybody to go vegan. And so our work strives to help create some equity in terms of the accessibility of healthy foods and also, um, you know, encourage and help people to go vegan when they have those options. Mm. Um, and the last part of our work is trying to get people not to buy chocolate sourced from where the worst forms of child labor, including slavery, take place. And so we have a list of chocolates we do and do not recommend based on where they source them. Every company make, has to make a vegan chocolate to make our list. But our work is really about showing these connections, showing how these issues are connected and us creating tools to help people eat their ethics, to help people see that their food choices can make a difference. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, because I was just about to ask you, what do you mean by food empowerment? Maybe you can explain that anyway, but sure. feeling in, um, empowered by your food, I mean, maybe people feel like they are already, because you make a choice, but maybe they're not. Yeah, I think that, well, one, we mean more informed choices. But also, I think when I created the name of the organization, I put empowerment in there for two reasons. One is because people who are able to grow their own food are empowered. And many Black, Brown, Indigenous people were never made to benefit from pretty much anything in the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, the government here was created for white men who owned property, who were wealthy. So really empowering people to be independent, to be self-sufficient. It's empowering to be able to feed yourself, so growing your own food. But also, there's something, you know, I, I will use the example that when I was in high school, I was involved in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, and I didn't feel like there was a whole lot I could do. But one of the things that I knew I could do was follow along what they were asking us to do by not buying from companies that supported the apartheid regime. Mm. So I felt really empowered by making sure I wasn't buying those products. I also knew that I felt I was I felt empowered by not buying grapes because the farm workers and 
California were asking people to boycott grapes. So there was something empowering about being able to use my food choices to help to create positive change in the world. So that's why I threw the word empowerment in there. Okay, I like it. I guess food is something that we all need and we all buy and consume all the time. So actually, when you're thinking about sustainability and the environment and ethics, food should be potentially your number one thing that you think about, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we think about it. We eat, for those of us who have the privilege, we eat several times a day. Mm. So with every food that we're buying, we have the ability to make choices about supporting a business or not, to support a certain industry or not, and making sure, does it meet my ethics? If it doesn't meet my ethics, then I should not be supporting it. Again, this comes with privilege. I'm not talking about people who struggle to put food on their table every day. I'm talking about those people who have that type of privilege. Mm. So somebody might be listening and thinking, okay, that's great, but I don't know this information. So, and it is a bit of a minefield, even just going vegan can be like, oh my God, what do I buy? So then how do you know that what you're buying is ethical and not supporting unfair trade? How do you find out that information? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I know that it can be very overwhelming. Going vegan can be overwhelming initially if you especially if you're feeling all alone. It's a shock to your system when all of a sudden you look around and so many things in our lives involve the exploitation of non-human animals. And so I understand completely why people might feel that way. And I think that one of the things to consider is that commodity products are going to primarily be involved with some type of abuse. Food Empowerment Project is really trying to make it easier for people. On our website, we have not only the list of chocolates, we have wine, coffee, bananas that we recommend. So, I mean, we try to make it to where people can use our site to become more informed and to buy, you know, from, you know, it's hard to say ethical companies, right? Because at the end of the day, we're not really sure about everything, but to do our best, at least. Um, We also have information on our website about like some of the worst companies that you shouldn't be supporting, like Monsanto, which I know you all don't have to worry about as much over there, but we certainly do here. Um, But Coca-Cola and Nestle, you know, who are two companies. And again, the thing about these companies is they own so many subsidiaries. So these are two companies that although um, it's not just Coca-Cola, it's also Minute Maid. It's not just Nestle. It's the candy bars. It's the water companies that they own. But to make sure you're not supporting companies such as those that have had such a, a bad record when it comes to the environment as well as to human rights. Yeah, I do find that a little bit stressful. Like, for example, I I eat Marmite. I don't think you guys have it there. I don't know. It's a very English thing. And I love it. And it's vegan. (laughs) (laughs) And then somebody said to me that it's owned by Unilever, which I think sends its products to China and has where they get tested on animals. And there are reasons why it shouldn't really be you know, classed as vegan. And I felt awful about that. And then I thought, well, where do I, where does this stop? Because isn't everything owned by something? And, oh, it was just, it was stressing me out. But it's good to know there are resources where you can go, where it will tell you stuff like that, like the Food Empowerment Project. Yeah, and I get it, you know, right? I can see that. I mean, for me, you know, animal rights is pretty much my baseline, right? So if a company is testing on animals, or anything like that, that's kind of pretty much it. You know, like I'm not going to support a company that harms non-human animals. Hmm. And I think that we do draw the line in different places. I mean, I've been places, I went to India for my previous job and 
I, I drank Coca-Cola. You know, it was the only option available and it wasn't really encouraged for me to, to drink the water there. Hmm. So, you know, I did end up doing things like that. So I do think we have to draw the line in certain places, but I think that we do our best to meet our ethics. Um, if I liked something like Marmite, I might see if there was another company that did a, if a grocery store did a name brand version mm. of it or something like that, that I may not be supporting <laughs> Unilever. Uh, but, you know, I think that there's just different ways. I mean, for me, I really am very careful about the vegan and that whole realm, as well as just not buying chocolate that comes from slavery. Those are, you know, like where I draw the line and other things I definitely do my best, but I'm sure I slip up here and there. I was going to ask, have you always stuck to your morals in terms of food? And do you find it quite hard to make ethical choices? Or have you ever found it hard? Def I have definitely found it hard in terms of the veganism. Being vegan in the late 80s in Texas wasn't easy, but it was pretty, you know, again, to me, it's just about the suffering. So it's pretty easy to be like, I'm not consuming animal products, you know, like I went to Germany for my previous job and I literally ate shredded carrots and sliced cucumbers. There wasn't enough food for me. We were touring solar companies and we ate in the solar companies cafeterias in Germany and there was nothing that I could eat. And so, you know, and my boss was worried because I, there were so many places we went where I could not eat. I brought food with me, but when we were out visiting places, I would go you know, a day without eating much of anything because I'm not going to not be vegan. You know, that's not something that I will compromise on. But of course, you know, have I bought something like, oh, this juice looks really good and I buy it and I drink it. And I'm like, oh, this is so good. And then I look at the label and I'm like, oh, why didn't I read the label before? This is owned by, you know, a particular company that I don't want to support. So, you know, there are times when it's hard, but I think that that's why, as vegans, a lot of us know we got to bring food with us. My husband is much better about it than I am because I'm I can kind of go okay without eating, but he he has to eat or he'll get shaky. So he always brings food with us. And so, but I think that traveling back in the day, I wasn't always as smart about bringing food with me, and I would I would go without eating. And it's not because it's a martyr thing, but it's because my desire to not contribute to harming somebody or being a participant in that. You talked about you've talked about chocolate quite a bit and I've seen you talk about that a lot in talks. Why is that such a big topic? Why chocolate specifically? Well, a couple of reasons I think. One is because being vegans, we kind of refer to things as being cruelty-free. Mm. And we refer to recipes as cruelty-free and foods as cruelty-free. And when I see chocolate listed as cruelty-free, and it's not talking about where it's sourced is very hard for me to digest now. Um, because if it's at the hands of slavery or child labor, it's most certainly not cruelty free. And also because chocolate is an absolute luxury, but yet we have children who are being locked in at night, who try to escape, they're beaten. If they don't work fast enough, they're beaten all for a luxury product such as chocolate. And so to me, you know, how horrific is it that when you, you know, a lot of commercials show children enjoying chocolate, and yet if you look in Western Africa and parts of Brazil, you have children and adults who are enslaved just to make that product. And this is going on right now. I mean, it's just horrible. It's yeah. just overwhelmingly, yeah, it's just, I, you know, really hard to comprehend that, that 
that anybody would think that's okay. What are the other kind of big ones that we should be avoiding? I mean, for me, I've since I've left New Zealand, I haven't bought an avocado because we source them from kind of South America or Mexico here. And I've researched too much into that, whereas in New Zealand they were grown in the country. And so that's my one. But I'm sure there are there are many more that are kind of, for you at least, big no-nos. Well, I think bananas is a really difficult one. Mm. Um, bananas, we have a long, in a really well-researched section that one of our volunteers did on, on bananas, kind of like the colonization, the sexism and just the destruction to the environment that bananas cause that we recommend very few banana companies. So I think bananas is a really tricky one. Again, I think a lot of these commodity products are difficult. Coffee is another one. Mm. So we do we do have this information on our side. I don't know I, for bananas, I don't know how geared it is towards um outside of the US. It's definitely something we can look into though. We're we are going to be looking more into avocados, cashews. We're a small but growing organization. And so we do have on our list to take a look at these other products as well. Cool. Do you think that people are becoming a bit more aware of their food choices? That's a great question. Um, I think so. It's so hard because I, I want to say yes and then I want to say no, because I feel like I'm also in a bubble, right? I'm used to people. I, people are coming to us because they care. So I can easily say, oh, yeah, you know, we hear from all sorts of people. We know they care. Hmm. And then I look at the world around me and I'm like, when are people going to start recognizing, you know, how is it that farm workers in the United States can be counted essential workers? recognizing that during the pandemic that their work is vital, not only to the economy, but to sustaining us all. And yet they're still excluded from many benefits that are being passed mm. to protect workers um, during the pandemic. It's like there's still something not computing. Yeah, I think you mentioned earlier privilege and it's something I think where I live in Bristol, you know, this big vegan community is quite kind of left wing and a little bit hippie. So you start to think that everybody's like that. But actually, it's quite a lot of middle class people who can afford to be vegan and make ethical choices. So do you think that it is a privilege to be able to do that? Because a lot of people just go to the supermarket with their families and buy the cheapest shop they can just to make sure they can eat for the week? To some extent, it's definitely privileged to even have the ability to think about food in any other way but survival. Many people are trying to figure out and making decisions between paying their rent or feeding their families or paying the electricity. So to think about food any in any other way, I think, is, is a form of privilege. That's not to say that people who are living through this and experiencing it don't know, right? We, When our work, when we've done focus groups in impacted communities where, you know, people don't have access to healthy foods, they know what's happening for coffee. Many of them are immigrants. They know, they've seen, they understand what's happening. They understand why paying fair wage um, or living wage, I'm sorry, is important. But it doesn't mean that I have the financial ability to do so. They are aware of agricultural chemicals. Mm. doesn't mean that they're able to buy organic. So they do know about these things, maybe in a different way, maybe because their family members worked in the fields and were exposed to agricultural chemicals. 
versus knowing about studies, you know, so they know there's something harmful about it, but they can't always afford to make those choices. Yeah. What would your kind of tips be then if somebody's listening now and thinking, actually, I do want to make more ethical and sustainable food choices. Where should they start? I would start with looking at what you're eating. You know, like literally look at what you're eating and decide, especially if you're, you know, again, I'm going to have my bias here, but especially if you're not vegan and you look at what you're eating and you say, do I support what's happening to hens, you know, being put in cages, be, having the tips of their beaks cut off, you know, do I support all of that? Do I support the destruction of our oceans because I want to eat shrimp? You know, making those decisions on that, I think, first, if they're not vegan. If they're vegan, then I think taking a really hard look at things like their chocolate, looking at their coffee, looking at some of these other products that they eat. And also, you know, when it comes to produce, we know that it's not as simple as saying, oh, I can't eat produce anymore because farm workers are suffering. That's not what we're asking people to do. We're asking people to, to look and listen to what the farm workers are asking for. So there are farm workers asking for boycotts of certain companies. One of the international boycotts is against a company called Driscoll's, which does berries. And so the farm workers are asking people to boycott that company until the rights of the workers in San, San Quintín, Mexico are met. So there are some things that the farm workers are specifically asking us to do, and we're not asking people to not eat produce. It's just listen to them. Be aware of any legislation or policy changes that come up that are asking for more rights for farm workers and to lend your voice to those. Is it a big no to shop in the supermarket? Or do you think, do you shop in the supermarket or would you always go to kind of smaller, independent, local shops? Well, I think it's a privilege that I have that one, I get a community supported agriculture box on my doorstep every week. So I'm able to support small local farmers. Mm -hmm. And I do also shop at a local grocery store. But that again, is a privilege, I feel like that not everybody has, I certainly didn't have it when I lived in another city, it just happens to be where I'm living right now. But I think that if you're shopping in a regular supermarket is to make sure that you talk to the people there. If you see Driscoll's berries being sold in the store to mention it to the, the grocery store and say, hey, did you know there's a boycott against this company? Would you consider buying berries from somewhere else? Or at least mentioning this, that you're concerned about it and reaching out to the company or your supplier about it. So making sure that what's being sold in the store, that you're communicating, that they know that you care about these issues because they don't know that we care unless we tell them. Mm. Well, that kind of leads on to my next question was, what else can we do to bring about change that goes bigger than just what we buy to eat at the shop? I mean, I always say individual choices and collective voices. So our individual choices are important, but we have to use our collective voices in order to create change. We have our chocolate app that you can download for free. Again, you can even write out England and it'll list all the chocolate companies that are sold in England that we do or do not recommend. On the app, it allows you the ability to reach out to the company. You can tell them, great, thank you for sourcing, you know, not where slavery and child labor is the most prevalent. This matters to me. You can tell them, why aren't you being transparent about where your cacao comes from? to I'm not buying your product anymore because you're not sourcing from an area I feel good about. That's amazing. That's through the app. Yeah. We, right now we're just adding the Twitter handle so you can do it directly, but we do have a link on the app. You can do it directly from Facebook and from Twitter. So we try to make that easier for people, but I think just really 
talking about these issues, learning about these issues, and definitely talking to where you get your food and the companies directly. Mm. I think it's really important because they don't, they, they're making their millions off the fact or billions because they don't think we care. They, these chocolate companies, for example, are thinking that we would rather buy cheap chocolate than care about children being locked in overnight. Mm. And that's what they will continue to think until we tell them differently. I'm just wondering, obviously, the US and the UK are in a pretty bad state in terms of the coronavirus pandemic. Do you think that's affected the the efforts to supply and to support more ethical food products? Yeah, I'm not sure. Again, very good question. In some regards, like I feel like the pandemic has shown everybody what it's like to go to a grocery store and not be able to buy what you want to buy. And that's what many black, brown, indigenous people face on a daily basis when they go to get food, which because many of them don't even have grocery stores in their communities. I'm hoping that there's some realization for people about what a privilege it is to be able to go in and buy what you want from the grocery store. I do think that, you know, there are some people who are more acknowledging human beings in the supply chain grocery workers, fast food workers, all these people who are deemed essential workers. Yeah, I don't I don't know exactly if it's harmed or helped. I, anything at any time, I just hope that people have allowed themselves to slow down and think about things more and try to figure out. I mean, my big hope, I wrote a whole blog on it, you know, like people having this movie moment where they've been locked in and everybody opens their doors at the same time and has a more of appreciation for the world around us. And and obviously that didn't happen for everybody, but I still hope it it has happened for some. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people here through lockdown started growing their own food in the back garden and stuff. So that's a good thing. And hopefully that kind of thing will continue. But, you know, some things, some things start and then the momentum goes and we're all back to normal again. So we'll see, I guess. I know. I, I just hope not. I just can't uh, with all the deaths that we've had. I know. It's horrible. I just wondered, in terms of what you eat, would you ever eat kind of vegan replacement products or anything like that? Or are you very kind of whole food and that's it, whole fresh food? No, I'm a, I'm a junk food vegan. I mean, like chips have to be on my menu every day, basically. Oh, and chips, I should say your chips and my chips. I love <laughs> French fries and I love um, crisps. Nice. So, um no, I'm not. Because I, again, you know, I went vegan for the animals. I didn't do it for health. I did it for their health. But that isn't to say that I haven't recognized over time the importance that it is that I be a healthy person to be a good representative of veganism. I wasn't really ever a big meat eater because I went, you know, vegetarian young, but cheese was a very big deal to me, you know? And I feel like people who like the meat replacements or the cheese replacements and they're vegan, I think that they're one of the best representatives of veganism in the sense that they're proving that it wasn't about the taste. They may have liked the taste, but they went vegan because they didn't want to support the cruelty or because they wanted to protect the planet. So, you know, I I do eat some, I don't eat a lot, but I will say that I love vegan, vegan cheese but I will have vegan pepperoni on my pizza or something like that, you know? Mm. But I think that I want to always make sure that people who do eat that way, that it's recognized that they are the perfect example of why somebody goes vegan is that it's about not causing suffering more than it is about anything else. So by all means, if they want their vegan fish or their vegan, you know, prawns or whatever it may be, 
that they are showing people that it's possible to love all of that and still give it up for for a higher cause. Mm, that's really interesting because so many people say, well, if you're vegan, why would you want to eat something that looks or tastes like meat? That's just wrong. But actually, I think that's very well put how, how you said it. I was talking yesterday about, I don't know if you've seen it in the news over there, but the lab meat. So they've been, you know, they've been working on this for years, this kind of lab chicken where they've taken mm-hmm. a little bit of something from a chicken and basically created this meat from it, this flesh. So I've been having these discussions about how is it better in terms of sustainability because you're not killing animals, but it's a little bit weird. And then we're eating lab food. Do you have any thoughts on it? Would would you, I guess you wouldn't eat it obviously because nope. it has come from an animal, but do you exactly. think it's a good thing? Um, no, I, I mean, I, I would rather us break away from the concept of still needing to use an animal for anything like that in the sense that they're still using an animal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're still using an animal. And I don't know at all how that animal's been treated and what variations have gone on I just it's still exploiting that animal Mm. so I'm not really in favor of anything that still involves an animal yeah I guess the argument is they just use I don't know they'd use like one animal and then just take a sample from that animal and create lots yeah I don't don't really understand how it works but it seems quite weird to me (laughs) yeah and I get that right but it's to me that's yeah, it's a, to me, that's a utilitarian perspective in the sense that that one animal still mattered. Their life mattered. Mm. Even though it's just one, it's that's still an individual. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Everyone's got a different view on it. So it's, yeah, it's yeah. interesting to hear. Um, totally. In terms of the Food Empowerment Project, you did mention some stuff. What specifically are you up to at the moment that we can check out? Oh, well, we are working on vegan Lao food. Um, so we're asking for any who has any delicious Lao recipes that are vegan to share them with us. We would appreciate that. We also are working on, you know, our plans for next year. Um, one of the things we work on and we're going to continue work on is the, the issue of, of milk, not only due to the suffering of cows in the dairy industry, but also the fact that many Black, Brown, and Indigenous people are what we call lactose normal, which other people call lactose intolerant. We don't call it lactose intolerant because too many times the onus is put on black and brown people as if there's something wrong with us. But in reality, there's nothing wrong with not being able to digest the milk of another species. And added to that is the fact that milk is really, for many of us, it is a product of colonization. So for my ancestors who were in the Americas, Mm. cows were brought over by Columbus on the fourth voyage. So milk wasn't really something that my ancestors consumed. So it's no wonder why many of us are lactose normal. So, you know, we'll be delving into that a little bit more. We'll be working more on our fight for the ocean campaign to, you know, help people make that connection between the animal that they love who's caught in a fishing net and the fish who they were trying to catch. So a lot of times, rightfully so, people are heartbroken when they see sea turtles and other whales and dolphins caught in fishing nets, but they don't quite make that connection that those nets are out there because of people's desire to consume sea creatures. Mm. So we'll be doing more work on that. Again, we'll be doing our school supply drive for the the children of farm workers again. Um, We'll figure out what else is needed during the pandemic to help. And we are working in a new community on um, lack of access to healthy foods in California. So we'll be doing a lot of work in that area, too. Cool. You're so busy. It's amazing. 
Yes. So if people want to if people want to find out a bit more, is the website the best place to go? What what resources should we head to? Yes, we our website is foodispower.org. And that website is in English and in Spanish. And all of this information and much more is on the website and it's fully referenced. Um, we're also on social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Perfect. And in terms of Obviously, there's you guys and you're great. So we will definitely head there. But are there any other um, good online resources or films? In fact, I only just found out that you were in Cowspiracy. So maybe that's a good film to watch. Uh, any other kind yeah. of resources like that that you would recommend yeah. heading to just to just find out a bit more information, I guess? Well, I think that, you know, if anybody's learned, interested in learning more about the chocolate issue online there, you can watch two documentaries. One is called The Dark Sided Chocolate. The other one is called Shady Chocolate. My mentor was um, one of the people involved in both of those documentaries, and that gives you some good background on what's happening there. Cool. Okay, that's great. Some good resources to get us started then. Um, just before we go, Lauren, is there anything that we haven't covered or that you just wanted to add to the conversation in particular? I think that, well, one, I want to thank you for having me on your show. I think that a lot of times it's uncomfortable for people to talk about both of these issues, veganism and human rights and this connection between human and animal rights in a more in-depth way versus just a slogan. So I just really want to appreciate you um, talking to me about this and having your listeners um, think about these issues as well, because I think the more that we can see that we're all on the same side, the more that we can create a more just and equitable and sustainable world. Huge thank you to the brilliant Lauren Ornelas educating us all. I've learned so much from that. It's a lot to think about and definitely making more ethical food choices can mean a big change in habits, but surely the positive impacts of our actions outweigh the difficulty in making those changes. So, as usual, we'll do a little recap of what our guest has talked about and just um, highlight some of the main points from my conversation with Lauren. So firstly, she said, we eat several times a day and with every food we buy, we have the ability to make choices about whether the business or industry it comes from meets our ethics. She said, start with looking at what you're eating, especially if you're not vegan and question whether you support what's happening for that food to reach you. But how do you find out about where your food comes from? Well, the Food Empowerment Project is brilliant. Foodispower.org is the website. They've got loads of information about general produce, as well as chocolate, wine, coffee, all the treats. And it's individual for each country, which is amazing. So head over there and type your country in and see what information uh, you can find. Lauren also talked about finding out the worst companies and just avoiding all of their products. You might need to do some extra research to find out the subsidiaries they own, but of course, uh, Food Empowerment Project is pretty good at helping you out with that too. She also said work out your baseline of, you know, what you just won't stand for. Is it harm to animals? Is it harm to humans too? Is it produce that's travelled far? Is it just what's feasible for you right now? Listen to the concerns of farm workers. Find out about the boycotts that are happening around the globe, including in your own country, and 
hopefully join them if you can. If your local shop is selling something with questionable ethics, bring it up with them, whether it's a big supermarket or your corner shop. Food Empowerment Project has an app allowing you to reach out to companies doing good things, as well as the ones stocking products with poor ethics. So download that and it might save you some effort in getting in touch with them. Lauren is super inspiring and I think a lot of us would like to be able to do what she does. So I did ask her a couple of questions about activism. So she said, allow yourself to have passion and drive to get something started if you have a project that you're passionate about. But also allow yourself to be disappointed and wondering where it's going. However, never give up. Some of the biggest campaigns Lauren has run have taken so much time and loads of effort. But in the end, it is so worth it. Please do go and check out Food Empowerment Project at foodispower.org. They're also uh, found on social media just at Food Empowerment Project. There's some really great posts up at the moment um, which will really get you thinking. I just shared one about veganism, so go and check that one out. You've been listening to Wanna Be Greener with me, Harriet Robinson. You can find out more from me at wannabe.greener on Instagram. Feel free to get in touch and say hi. And please do rate and review this podcast, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcast. It really does help others to make the decision about whether to listen or not. In the next episode, I'll be speaking to water consultant and host of the podcast Breaking Green Ceilings, Sapna Mulkey, about the race to preserve Earth's most precious resource. That's water, by the way. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you then.